You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Romans chapter 1, we're just going to begin by kind of recounting where we've been in terms of context. Romans chapter 1, page 939, if you're using the church's Bible. But you already know that. Um, so look, basically looking at the context here, uh, we've been over this several times, but I, I don't think we can emphasize it too much. Uh, Paul begins his letter to the Romans by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for what? Uh, the gospel, the gospel of of God, yeah. And I've emphasized this many times, and um, I'm certainly not emphasizing this because I can't think of things to say. You all know better than that, right? Uh, Sometimes you wish that I couldn't think of things to say so much. Uh, It's never been a problem thinking of things to say. Um, But I emphasize this because uh, we want to etch this deeply in our minds that this is God's gospel. It's God's gospel. It's not our gospel. It's not Paul's gospel. Paul will refer to it as his gospel because he's embraced it as his own. And we can refer to ours if we want, just as long as we understand that this is God's gospel. And in verse three, we learn that this gospel doesn't concern, it does not center on us. Um, That can be a very difficult thing to get out of our heads because uh, uh, we think everything centers on us. It doesn't center on us. It centers on who? centers on Christ Jesus, right? Concerning his son with a capital S. uh, Concerning his son who is Jesus Christ. Skipping down to verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of salvation. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Uh, Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And um, we've been studying that a lot as we've got to Uh, Romans 3 and 4, this idea of righteousness, you know, because Paul will begin to speak in Romans 1.18 and he spends quite a few verses saying, listen, okay, in order to get into heaven, there's this righteousness that's required. In order to stand into God's presence, there's this righteousness that's required. And it's a righteousness that we clearly do not have in and of ourselves. Correct? You've heard me say that many times. I keep saying this over and over again because here's what's going to happen. You're going to find yourself one of these days at the coffee pot at work or wherever, and this is just going to start burning out of your mouth, and it's going to be wonderful. You're going to say, listen, oh, no, 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 no. The atonement's very important. There's a righteousness that's required to get into heaven. It's a righteousness that we don't have. Left to ourselves, there's no one who does good. There's no one who is righteous. No, not one. All together have turned aside. Together they become worthless. Uh, Romans 3, if you turn there. Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then you can think of Romans uh, 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed. Uh, the righteousness that's required to get into heaven has been made available to us. It's made available in Christ Jesus. And the question that we've been wrestling with now for the last few weeks is, okay, how do we make this righteousness ours? How do we appropriate it? How do we take it? How do we take it to be ours? That's the, that's the question that we've been wrestling with for the last few weeks. And the Apostle Paul makes it really clear. He says, it cannot come by works of the law, for chapter 3, verse 20. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You see that? Take a look at those verses and read that. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And if you skip down to Romans 3 and verse 28, he says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Do you see that? And um, if you would skip just a little bit with me to Galatians, skip past, I mean, keep going towards the back of the Bible, past 1 Corinthians, past 2 Corinthians, go to Galatians. You'll see that Paul says this in his other letters in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, page 973 if you're using the church's Bible. What's Paul say in Galatians 2, verse 16? He says, we know that a person is not justified by what? By works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see that? Now, with that in mind, let's turn to James. James chapter 2. Some of you already know what we're up to. Because you've studied these passages. A couple of you are smiling. Then that's great. James chapter 2. Page 1012. 1012 if you're using the church's Bible. What do we have in James 2? James says, you see that a person is justified by what? By works and not by faith alone. Rut row. Rut row. Um, this has really been a subject of great, 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 great. Uh, this has just been a big time headache for a lot of people. Um, it appears that though the Bible's contradicting, doesn't it? It appears that Paul and James are at odds over this one, doesn't it? Are they at odds? Well, a lot of us are going to say, well, no, they can't be because you have this idea of Scripture that it's God's Word and it doesn't contradict itself. And that's correct. But, okay, explain how they don't contradict one another. Well, uh, <laughs> I can remember sitting there thinking, okay, how do I explain this one? Um, well, when we're studying our Bible, there are three things that are important, right? What are they? I hear lots of people saying context. Um, what's the context that James is speaking in? You see, that's the key. You'll notice we're doing things a little differently this morning. All I intend to do with this sermon this morning is have what R.C. Sproul used to call a fireside chat. Let's just try to imagine we're around a big bonfire and we're having a chat about this, okay? Um, what, is, what is the context that James is speaking of in here? Well, let's, we, we looked carefully at the context that, that Paul is speaking in. Let's look carefully at the context that James is speaking in. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, James there says, 
James, a servant. Now, James, by the way, is the half-brother of Jesus. James, the just, as he is often uh, referred to in church history. Uh, he was known for his piety, especially for his prayer. Uh, he was a great man of prayer. Uh, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Uh, that's an important point there. James is telling us who he's writing to. Uh, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Now I hear someone across the fire saying, okay, that's really helpful. What in the world are the, are the twelve tribes of the dispersion? Uh, well, there's a really long answer to that. There's a really short answer to that. And um, I think the best answer for our purposes this morning might be the one that's in between somewhere. If we think back in the history of um, Israel, Israel really, their, their heyday really was under King David. And we could even say in many ways under King Solomon, although under King Solomon, the wheels really were falling apart. Um, but nevertheless, they were, they, they were at their, their greatest during those, those two uh, dynasties, during that dynasty, if you will, during those two reigns, if you will. But um, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, uh, really uh, drops the ball. And you'll, some of you may recall that Israel becomes divided at that point. And the northern tribes separate themselves from the southern tribes and the northern tribes, they, they, they separate themselves from Jerusalem. They separate themselves from, uh, from the temple. And uh, things are done, actually, uh, politically speaking, to keep people from doing that. Uh, they become an island out on their own, which uh, we always need to be cautious about. Uh, one of the things that the devil always tries to do is he tries to get us, he tries to take us away from our church family and get us out apart and away. Uh, that, that's one of his favorite tactics to do. Well, he gets the northern tribes separated. And what does he do? They begin to apostatize. God sends prophets to the northern tribes, calling them back to covenant life uh, and threatening that if they do not, hedges of protection are going to come down. And of course, some of you know how that worked out. Uh, they, they refused to repent and return and God raised up Assyria and Assyria came and conquered them, right? Came and conquered them. And um, one of the tactics, one of the strategies of the Assyrian na uh, nation was when they conquered people was to take them and scatter them into other parts of the world. And that's what they did. They took the, the 10 tribes of Israel and they scattered them all around. They dispersed them, if you will. Now, their, their sister Judah, she's down south and she's not exactly behaving herself either, but she's doing a little better than the northern tribes. God sends prophets to her. Say, listen, I mean, you of all people, haven't you seen what happened to your northern neighbors? Now, this is going to happen to you. Well, they didn't, they, they didn't heed and God raised Babylon up and Babylon came, comes and uh, conquers them. And what does, what does the king, what's Nebuchadnezzar do? He carries them off. It's uh, a strategy. They're dispersed. So here you have these tribes dispersed all over uh, the, the, really, in many ways, the known world at this point. Now, that's half the story. The other half of the story is after Christ's ascension, after Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, uh, Jesus makes good on his promise to send the helper, to send the Holy Spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit into the believing community of the church, Acts chapter 2, and the gospel begins to go out. With great strength, God accompanying the gospel with strength, uh, uh, people began to believe, uh, primarily in Jerusalem. Uh, people began to believe. Now that is met with fierce persecution. 
uh, and uh, you, you, you'll read in Acts chapter 7 of the stoning of Stephen, if you will. And uh, after that, with this fierce persecution, uh, the Christian Jews begin to scatter. They begin to be dispersed all over the world. And this is who James is writing to. He's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's writing to Jewish Christians that are scattered about, okay? Jewish Christians scattered about. And uh, it's important that we understand that. Now we can, uh, we get a a few other clues Um, in a a little bit. We're going to be talking about Abraham and talking about Rahab. Uh, These are folks that wouldn't really have meant very much to the Gentile community. Uh, They probably wouldn't have known. They may have known who Abraham was, but Rahab, who are they going to know who Rahab is? Uh, And even as we have our fireside chat, there might be someone around the fire say, that's a good one. I don't know who Rahab is either. Well, Well, we'll talk about that in a couple minutes. But it's important as we look at the context to see who James is talking to. He's talking to the Jewish community, the Jewish Christian community scattered about. Um, Verse two, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse three, for you know that the testing of your what? Faith. Now I see faith is mentioned very quickly in in the letter. And this is one of the key themes, if you will, of James. He says that your that the, that the, these trials, uh, you know that these trials, you know that the testing of your faith that these trials bring to us uh, produces steadfastness. This whole idea of faith producing, you see, we have that in verses two, two and three. The idea of faith producing, faith being productive, faith. Uh, uh, producing steadfastness, if you will. Verse four, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Then a practical example, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God uh, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Many of us have counseled each other with these verses, haven't we? Come, Boy, I just need some discernment on this. I don't know what to do. Well, ask the Lord. Ask the Lord. He, he gives you know, he, he, you know, I haven't been living up the way I should be. Listen, God gives wisdom generously to all without calling all that stuff. In. Ask the Lord. Come to the Lord. Ask him and it will be given. Verse six. But let him ask in what? Let him ask in faith. You see, that's coming up again. This is a key theme here. Let him ask in faith with no what? With no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Now, let me again, um, James is not only talking about faith, but he's, he's talking about a certain kind of faith here. Now, let me say something to this, because last week I spent a lot of time talking about Abraham and talking about, you know, uh, when we were looking at Romans chapter four, and finishing up Romans chapter four, we saw that Abraham believed against hope. In hope, he believed against hope. We see that he was convinced, that he was convicted, that um, there was no wavering, if you will, the Apostle Paul says. You remember that discussion that we had, some of you heard last week. And I said, listen, you know, you can hear this. Uh, you, you can read passages like this and you can think to yourself, you know something, I have these doubts sometimes that come into my mind. You remember me speaking about that last week? We could read this passage and say, okay, well, you know, I'm disqualified here because I sometimes have doubts. Uh, uh, sometimes I have these doubts. Don't, don't, 
be, be careful right there. A true believer can have doubts from time to time. And we saw that in Abraham's life, he had struggles. I mean, let's think about it. I mean, Abraham, uh, God says, listen, through you, you're going to have children and I'm going to do such a great work through you uh, and through this promised son that you're going to touch all of the families of the earth. Okay. Abraham hasn't had this son yet, but yet he travels into these communities and he tells his wife, listen, when we get down there, you know, tell, tell them that, uh, tell them that you're my sister. What is Abraham worried about? He's worried about getting killed. He's obviously doubting the promise, isn't he not? He's scared, he's under trial, and he's doubting. How can it not be that way? Why would he say that? I had a seminary professor who used to say, listen, you are immortal until God's purpose for you is complete. That's easy to say until you're in that position. But you see, Abraham had doubts. There's a lot of people who listen to this sermon and say, Mike, what kind of preacher is this that would say the father of the faithful had doubts? Well, read the passages. I don't say this because I want to encourage us in doubting. I want to say this because the person that I'm talking to right now is the person that, okay, a true believer who has doubts once in a while. James is not talking about you. James is talking about the person that one minute believes there's a God and he's there and the next minute doesn't. That would not describe Abraham. That would not describe a true believer. That would describe someone who's kind of on the fence and hasn't made the move yet. That's who James is talking about. See, James is talking about two different types of faith here. Uh, We'll see more of that as we go along. Skip down with me to uh, verse 22. uh, James chapter 1, verse 22. He says, uh, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, for, uh, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will, be a, he will be blessed in his doing. We could say a lot about these passages. Let me say this right now. James is concerned about faith, isn't he? And he's very concerned about action. He's very concerned about action. Let me make some application of this now because I think this is a very important application to make. It is very possible to be madly in love with the Bible, madly in love with theology, madly in love with these doctrines and not have a foggiest clue who Jesus is or have no passion for Jesus whatsoever. And what that will look like is, um, okay, I love the creeds and I'll say the creed all day long. I mean, let, let's say the Apostles' Creed. Let's say the Nicene Creed. Let's, let's go through the catechisms. Let's go through, the, the, let's go through all of these classic confessions that uh, we could drum up. Um, um, and, and we'll give our amen to all these fine points of theology, but there's no Jesus in it. That's merely being a hearer of the word, isn't it? There's not going to be much activity, that's for sure. It's called dead orthodoxy is what it's often referred to. Um, Great theology um, in a dead heart. um, In a completely dead heart. So we see that James is concerned about faith, but he's concerned about a certain type of faith. A faith 
that is active, um, a faith that is active. If we continue to go down, verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religious is worthless. It's worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained for the world. There we see again, faith in action. James is concerned about action. He goes on, chapter two, my brother, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Yeah. Here, um, James is again talking about action. Um, we're starting to study the Ten Commandments on Wednesday nights and um, we know that the Ten Commandments can be summarized with two, right? Christ summarized the whole Ten Commandments with, with two commandments. The first table of the Ten Commandments is summarized with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, correct? And the second table is summarized by loving your neighbor as yourself. Okay, faith. Uh, faith in God uh, should be leading us to uh, not only be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Can we be a doer of the second, the second great commandment if uh, a, per, a middle-class person comes through our doors and we all flock to them while a poor person comes through our doors and we pass over them? That's what James is saying to us. He's saying, listen, I mean, if you favor the one over the other, you're making a distinction with evil thoughts. And you know what you're doing? You're throwing out the whole second table of the law is what you're doing here. You're throwing it all out. And of course, if we've thrown out the second table of the law, you know what we've done to the first table of the law? We've discarded it too. And that's what James develops with the rest of chapter. Well, with these verses all the way down to chapter, uh, verse uh, uh, 13, uh, verse 14, if you will. So we're seeing a little bit of the context of what James is up to. When we come to chapter 2 and verse 14, uh, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have any action? You see the context he's been developing? What good is it if you have faith and you don't have any works? That's the first point I want to make with this message. If you're trying to figure out is there a point to this, Rick? Well, he's trying to make a point to this. The first point would be faith without action is dead. It comes right out of verse 17. He says faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's concerned, he's concerned about a certain type of faith is what James is concerned about. It's faith. He says, what good is it, my brothers, verse 14, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? He's concerned about a certain pedigree of faith that we would refer to as saving faith. There are lots of different kinds of faith, as we're going to see here in a few minutes. There's only one kind that saves, saving faith. You don't have saving faith. You're not in a state of grace. This is really practical stuff, isn't it? He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, notice his concern for the poor. That's one thing I get from James. His 
concerned about the poor. I hope we're all concerned about the poor. Uh, James is very concerned about the poor. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that? Um, I could share a story about this. You know, it's a story that's haunted me for a long time. And uh, some, you know, some might hear this story and make judgments about me, and that's fine. But I, I was um, over in Liverpool probably about eight years ago, and I was by myself. I was just walking through town and trying to talk with anyone who would talk with me about faith. And uh, there was a man over there that I encountered, and I there was something about him that I was maybe a little cautious. I was just a little cautious. It was, it was, there was some caution as I approached him, but I, I thought I'm going to approach him. And I asked him if I could talk to him about his faith. And he said, well, sure. You know, so I began to talk to him, just basic questions about his faith. And then he shared with me that he was homeless and asked me if he knew of a place, if I knew of a place where he could spend the night. Now, this is where some might pass judgment on me. I mean, my immediate thought, and had I been a single man, I probably would have offered my home to him. But there was something about him. I was just, I don't know. I just, there was a flag. I, I wasn't sure this was safe to do. And uh, my sweetie is at home. Um, and I was thinking of these passages. And I couldn't help, like our little talk that we'd had about faith, it just came completely unraveled. Because here was a guy that needed a place to stay. Now, I don't know his whole story. I know there's more to his story than his side of the story. But I share this with you because the whole thing does come apart, doesn't it? Um, he had a material need that needed met. At that point in time, I knew nowhere. I, 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 if, if I'm not comfortable bringing him into my home, I'm not going to call someone else up and ask them, um, and I share this with you for a couple of reasons. When we read these verses, you know, there are times when we don't have the resources to help. I think that was the wise thing for me to do, but it has haunted me. If I'd have been single and I was only taking a risk in my own person, that would have been one thing. But we, you know, our first ministry is to our families. Um, some, some might say, Rick, you know, faith amounts to risk and you should take risk. And you know that whole story. I'm not talking that way. Uh, I don't like talking that way. I think there's times where God gives us um, some discernment here and says, this isn't safe. I don't know him. I don't know his story. But I got to tell you, I really, really, my heart just completely, anyone who didn't have a place to stay, no place to stay. So when we read, my point here is when we read these, what James is assuming here is that we have the resources to help, but we're choosing not to do so. I think it's an important qualification here because sometimes we want to help and we could beat ourselves up for not helping. We simply don't have the resources. Does that make sense? James is assuming that we have the resources and he says, okay, you're a man or a woman of faith. And also, I would say, verse 15, he says, if a brother or sister 
is poorly clothed. What's he referring to there? He's referring to a fellow Christian. He's referring to a fellow person. He's referring to someone who's in the faith. Okay, back to my example over here in Liverpool. This man was not in the faith. I can assure you of that. He was not in the faith. So he wouldn't even qualify here. Uh, But nevertheless, I still think it's a, a, a reasonable illustration of what James is saying. So there's some qualifications. If it's a brother or sister, if it's one of us. And one of us is in need. And James says, we have resources to help one of us who are in need. And we withhold those resources. Well, what good is that? What kind of faith is that? Is what James is saying. Does that make sense? Can you see that? That's what he's seeing here. So he says, listen, faith like that, faith that doesn't have this action associated with it, it's worthless. Now, he, uh, James is, is uh, ready for some, some objection. He's ready for some, uh, he's ready for some uh, uh, discussion on this. If you look at verse 18, but someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So in other words, someone said, well, okay, James, well, you're the faith guy. And I'm the works guy. You know, like, uh, it's like, okay, you got this spiritual gift of faith and I got this spiritual gift of works and someone else might have the spiritual gift of this and someone else might have the spiritual gift of that. Now, um, what's going on here? There's an attempt being made to separate what God has joined together. God has joined saving faith with works. And that's the second point I want to make this morning is that you cannot separate works or fruit or action from true saving faith. They're distinct from one another. They're different things, but they can't be set. Kind of like faith and repentance. If you have true faith, you're going to have repentance. Repentance is a different thing than believing and trusting. Repentance is a fruit in many ways, but true saving faith leads to repentance, doesn't it? If you have faith and you have no repentance, you don't have true saving faith. And in the same way, what James is saying, and it's important that we see this, is we can't separate. We can't separate works from true saving faith. We can't separate fruit from true saving faith. We can't separate uh, action, if you will, from true saving faith. It doesn't work that way. Someone says, you're the faith guy, I'm the work guy. No, 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 no. If you're a faith guy, you're also a work guy. If you're a faith guy, you're also an action guy. Uh, there's, there's, there's none of this cutting things up and dicing them up into nice and neat little things. He goes, you show me your faith apart from your works And this is important. I think verse 18 is really, really crucial. It's the key to understanding how James and Paul line up together. He says, I will show you my faith by my works. It's almost like when James is talking about these works, he's actually talking about faith. See, the faith is the fruit. It's the symptom, if you will. You know, if you, if, you, if you start coughing, chances are good you've got a cold. How do we know you've got a cold? Well, there's the symptom. It could be other things, but generally speaking, it's a cold, right? 
Okay, we start seeing these works. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it, um, it's got a good chance of meaning that this person is faithful. It's got a general... Listen, we can see good works in people that aren't true believers. But this is the same thing that Jesus says. You know, if you go back to Matthew 7, keep your place in James. We're not quite done there yet. But if you go back to, if you go back to Matthew 7, and, and Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 15, page 812, if you're using the church's Bible, Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Verse 15, Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their what? Their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree, no, it bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their what? Their fruits. You see, Jesus and James are talking about the same thing here. Um, They're talking about the same thing here. Um. Let's go back to James now. James is going to expand on this a little bit, and I find James 2.19 to be so helpful in counseling. I've used this so many times. Uh, He says, you believe that God is one. Uh, You do well. Even the demons believe. Um, uh, Some of you, I've had these conversations. I I look around with a couple of you and... um, where I've said things like this. Um, okay, tell me about your faith. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, Almighty God in the flesh, that He lived a perfect life without sin, that He offered that life at the altars of His justice on the cross in order to atone for the sins of those whom He came to save? Do you believe that on the third day He rose again from the dead, that he ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. There he is seated in session with God, with reigning in absolute authority and power. Um, uh, do you believe that he is offering salvation to all those who come to him? And people will go, yeah, I believe all that stuff. And then I'll ask, okay, does the devil believe that? And it, it's been, it's actually a lot of fun to do. I invite you to do it sometime. Because if you haven't thought about that, you'll be like, well, wait a second. If I say, if I say no, surely the devil knows all this stuff because he was trying to stop it at every step of the way. But if I say, yeah, the devil's not like, he's not in a state of grace. And it's so fun. It's so fun to do. Um, it, 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 does, does the devil know all these things? Do the demons know all these things? Absolutely. Who's the first to recognize Jesus during his earthly ministry? The demons. The, the demons recognize them. They know. They have this knowledge. And then what I'll follow up with, I'll say, okay, what's the difference between you and the devil? Ooh. Is there a difference? Well, you know, faith doesn't pro- produce any action in the devil. Oh, really? Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and what? This is not mere mental assent here. This is a type of faith. 
It's not thinking about Jesus like he's the first president of the United States. A lot of people think about Jesus and they just mentally assent to Jesus, you know, kind of like, listen, I wasn't around in the 1700s, but I trust that the history books are telling the truth when they say that there was this guy named George Washington and he really didn't want to be the president, but he ended up getting Huck Finn into being our first president of the United States. I, 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 I have confidence that that's true. And as you drive around, you know, different places, we were down around Wellsburg uh, yesterday and we saw this big sign. This is a crossing, George Washington crossing. I believe he crossed there. I believe he, but in terms of, of that having an effect on my behavior yesterday, I can't think of any way that it affected my behavior in any way. And for a lot of people, that's just mental assent. That's the way Jesus is. Okay, I believe Jesus. I'm like, yeah, I believe Jesus walked the earth. I believe he's everything. I believe all of these things. Everything that you've said, I believe. I mentally assent to these things. Uh, well, the devil mentally assents to those things too, but he even, he even does something a little bit better than that. He shudders. Whereas a person who's gospel hardened, who's heard the gospel and just is just sitting there and just listening to this and it's having no effect on their life. I'm not sure that that, I have to, I have to think that's actually a little bit worse because they're not even shuddering. The devil has a type of faith going on here. Oh, you better believe he has it. He knows it. He knows there's a day coming. The demons know there's a day coming. And they're living in, 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 probably in anxiety that's probably inconceivable to us uh, because they know that day's coming. They say, I think mental sense is actually worse because it doesn't, it's not affected at all. Let's go on. Uh, verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? You see what James is doing? He's qualifying faith. You know, the Apostle Paul said, listen, it's only through faith that we can have the righteousness that's being offered to us in Christ Jesus. And James is talking about the same thing as Paul because James is coming along and saying, okay, let's talk about the faith that Paul talks about and let's talk about what kind of faith Paul's talking about because there's lots of different kinds of faith. There's the faith of the demons, okay? They're not in a state of grace, they have a certain faith, but they have no interest in following God. They have no interest in following Jesus. They have no love for God. They have no love for Jesus. So that faith is not saving. That's easy for us to see. Mental assent is not saving. Mental assent certainly is not saving. Uh, James is going to show us the type of faith that is saving. Here's, you want to be shown, verse 20, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up uh, his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And that's the third point I want to make is faith produces something. You see, James has already been talking that way, hasn't he? Faith produces steadfastness under trial. He said that it's very early in the, in the letter, didn't he? You see, he's talking about the same things as all from a different vantage point. He's not in, in contradiction to Paul. No, Paul went to Jerusalem. He gave his testimony before the apostles. James was present. He gave his gospel spiel. James gave him the right hand of fellowship. Galatians chapter two. You can read about that this afternoon. 
Paul is not speaking a gospel that's contradictory to James. No, he's speaking. uh, They're speaking the same thing from different vantage points. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And notice verse 23. And scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now some will say, whoa, 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 whoa. I remember that from Romans. Paul's quoting that in Romans. Yes. And you remember when we were studying that in Romans, Paul is pointing to this. It's a quote from Genesis 15. Abraham is proclaimed, he is declared to be righteous in Genesis 15. Abraham doesn't offer his son Isaac on Mount Moriah until Genesis 22. Abraham is already justified many, many, many years before he ever makes it to Mount Moriah. And James is saying the same thing. But he's saying, listen, here's the deal. If there's anybody that's kind of wondering about Abraham, God has declared him to be righteous. And if anyone's wondering, if you really want to wonder about it, go look at Genesis 22 and you'll see it right there. He's a man of great faith. You see how that works? If you look at verse 24, what's James saying? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. There's a famous... um, slogan that was uh, popular during the time of the Reformation that went that we're saved by faith alone, uh, but not by a faith that is alone. Some of you, how many have heard that before? We're saved by faith alone, but not with a faith that is alone. That's a really good one little sentence there that sums it up. In uh, verse 25, James says, in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them by another way? Uh, Of course, some of you remember the story of Rahab uh, and Joshua. You know, Moses has passed away. Joshua is now at the helm. And um, uh, Joshua is is leading Israel in to take the promised land. And they send spies into the promised land. And the spies go to the, the, the city of Jericho. And there they're welcomed by Rahab, the prostitute. And Rahab actually spares their lives. She's, she's, uh, she hides them and uh, she uh, takes care of them so that their, their, uh, their campaign is actually successful. And she makes a profession of faith to those spies. She says, listen, I know that we're toast. I mean, I know that, I, I know that we're toast. And she makes a profession of God. She makes a profession of faith. And you see, that profession of faith is backed up by what? Action. You know, faith without action is dead. Faith and action cannot be separated. We can make distinctions between them, but we can't separate them. And the last point I want to make is that faith produces action. True saving faith produces action. So if there's no action, then there's nothing being produced. If there's nothing being produced, then we've got very good reasons to suspect that our faith is not saving. Does that make sense? Okay, a couple of comments uh, and I'll close. There's a couple of quotes here I have. I forget who I got these from, um, but uh, I think this helps us. Both James and Paul are looking at faith from two different vantage points. I've already said that. Paul speaks to the one who would obtain salvation by keeping the law. 
Paul speaks to the one who would obtain salvation by law keeping. James speaks to the one whose profession of faith is empty. I I wrote these down because I thought these are really helpful. Faith and deeds belong side by side. True saving faith produces works. Two truths. Faith without works is dead. Works without faith is equally dead. Make sense? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for uh, your goodness and uh, giving us the gift of, of, of faith, Father. I pray that as we read these words and as we listen to this discussion, Father, that um, you would call us, Father, to examine ourselves, to see that we're in the faith and to look at ourselves not for perfection. We, Father, we recognize that that is far from us, but to see uh, if there indeed is ho- uh, the evidence of holy living being produced by our faith. Is it, is it producing holy living in our lives? Is it making changes to our lives? Is, is the faith that we profess, is there action associated with it that is leading us in godliness and holy living? Father, help us to, to, uh, to um, examine ourselves this way, Father. Uh, help us to not get caught up in that, uh, that, Father, as, we, as uh, Spurgeon used to say, that we might, as we take one look at ourselves, we may take ten looks at Jesus. And Father, I pray that um, you, will, um, you will assist us and guide us and empower us in these ends. So, Father, yours is the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Any man.